Well, amen and amen. Good morning and happy Easter. Happy Easter. I am absolutely astounded. I love singing with the saints. And though I don't know some of you, thank you for blessing us with your voices. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church, and I'm just absolutely elated to be here today to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And this is such a good day. But you know, maybe you're not like me, but for me, weeks leading up to holidays, especially the major holidays, Christmas, Easter, they tend to be pretty stressful. And last week for me was a particularly stressful week. There was nothing really major that happened, but it was all these little things that were happening in my life that, that had me stressed out and doubtful of the future and really just apprehensive about what this next season of life was, was going to bring. And there were you know, obstacles in parenting. There were deadlines at work that I failed to, to, to meet. There was tension between my wife, Chelsea, and I. I had trouble sleeping. I was overeating the whole gamut, not to mention just my own personal failures had me troubled. So I decided I was going to take a walk, and I drove out to Chi-Town Park, and I decided to walk the trails. And as I was walking, at one point, I came to this rickety old bridge that sits over a creek out in the middle of the forest. And I've walked across it many times before, and it seems like every time I come upon this bridge, it's more and more janky. Like, it's more dilapidated. Like, pieces of the supports are falling away. It's, it's sort of rotting. There's big holes in the top of the floor of the bridge, and it just seems ancient, and it's moss-covered, and it's just this really sketchy thing to go across, but it's the only way to get to the other side. And every time I step on this bridge, I am like 100% confident that I'm going to end up butt-first in the muddy water <laughs> beneath this bridge. And I've walked across this bridge probably, probably 30, 40 times, maybe even 50 times. And every single time I've walked across this ancient bridge, it has held. The bridge always holds. Today we're going to encounter a man with some serious doubts whose life is transformed by his personal encounter with Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 43. We're going to be finishing chapter 1 of John today. We're going to start by reading verses 43 through 46 as we continue in our series titled Walking with the Word. And we're going to attempt to answer this question. How well does Jesus know me? How well does Jesus know me? John chapter 1 verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So in our story, it's a new day. And after a night's rest, Jesus returns to his home region of Galilee with a growing group of disciples behind him. Following him are John and Andrew and Peter. And as he returns home, he picks up a new man named Philip, and he calls him to follow him. 
Philip then goes to his friend, Nathaniel, and he exclaims, Nathaniel, my friend, we have found him. We found the one that all of our history has spoken about. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. His, his father's name is Joseph. He's the chosen one. He's the one we've been waiting for. You see, Jews like Philip and Nathaniel lived in a divided kingdom. There are different kinds of Jews, and most of them didn't really like each other or get along. Not only that, but the Jews in Nathaniel and Philip's day lived under the heavy hand of Roman rule and oppression, and, and they longed for freedom from this oppression. And here is Philip coming to Nathaniel, and he's saying, the one to unite us, Nathaniel, to bridge our division, to bring us freedom, the one whom the Bible has spoken about, it's true, the prophecy's through. But Nathaniel's reaction is different from the men we've seen so far in the gospel. We've seen Andrew and Peter and Philip come, and all of them have made very quick decisions to follow Jesus. But Nathaniel is different. He's a discerning man. He's a skeptical man. He's a doubtful man. And in a mocking tone, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth. Now you might hear that word Nazareth and be asking what's so bad about Nazareth? Like why is that an issue? Well, in Jesus' day, the general consensus of this place called Nazareth where Jesus grew up was that these people were bad news. They were dirty. When I was in high school, we used to call people from Duran the Duran Dirties. <laughs> All right? And I'm not trying to mock Duran. Some of my favorite, most beloved friends are from Duran, but you get the picture. There was this prejudice. These people from Nazareth were despised. And now Philip's question is essentially, the, the Bible doesn't say anything about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. And he was right. The Bible doesn't say anything about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth, at least in the Old Testament. But it does say that the Messiah, this chosen one, the one to unite the Jewish people, would be despised by those around him. Psalm 22, 6 and 7 says this. This is prophetic prophecy about Jesus. It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 53, 3 says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Philip claims to have spoken with and met the one God's word has foreshadowed in scripture. That he was alive, walking in human history. He had a father. He had a family. He was here. He was walking among them right now. And Nathaniel fulfills some of what is written about Jesus. As in a scornful and mocking tone, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm not unaware that some of you have come into this room with your own doubts. Doubts about why we're gathered today. Perhaps doubts about why mornings like this are useful. You might be doubting a friendship and asking, why did this person drag me to a dark basement to watch this man yell at me for 30 minutes? 
Some of you might have doubted whether or not you're going to get invited to Easter dinner if you didn't come to church this morning, right? Maybe you have doubts about the way that God thinks about you. Maybe you have doubts about who Jesus is, just like Nathaniel. Maybe you doubt that a God who stands high above creation could love you. My friends, doubt is something native to all of us. And Philip's reply to Nathaniel's doubts is indeed God's very invitation to you this morning as he simply says, come and see. God wants you this morning to come and see. The first thing he wants you to see is that Jesus knows all you are. Jesus knows all you are. Let's read verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus has an intimate knowledge of every person, every human being. As Nathanael is brought to Jesus... Jesus looks upon this man and he already knows intimately this man who's walking towards him, even though they had never met. Jesus knows Nathaniel's doubts about him as he comes to him. But he also understands that this, this man, Nathaniel, he's not a deceitful man. Despite his doubting about Jesus, Nathaniel comes with a genuine inquiry. He comes because he truly wants to know whether or not this Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son, is actually the Messiah, is actually the chosen one. And as much as Nathaniel wants to know whether or not Jesus is true and he's really the Messiah, Jesus knows the real Nathaniel. Do you have any parents in here today? I'm a parent, I have three boys. It's kind of like when your child comes to you and it's very clear that they want something. And before they open their mouths, you already know exactly what they're going to ask for and you understand exactly what their intention is in asking it. <laughs> like we've all been there, right? Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting, right? Because your kids will ask you like, how did you know? It's like most of the time I say, because I'm old. I was just like, hey, look, I'm old. You're not, I am. But realistically, I know my boys. I was there the day they were born. I cut every umbilical cord. I heard their first babbling words. I witnessed their first steps. Xavier threw up in my mouth. <laughs> like, I know my boys. I know them. And Jesus knows us. He's the creator. And he was there at our creation. He was there at our birth. He knows everyone. That Jesus knows you intimately means that he knows every single thought and intention of your heart. Right now, in this moment, Jesus knows precisely what you're thinking and feeling. Everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever felt, who you really are on the inside, Jesus has a perfect knowledge of that. So often we try to hide who we really are on the inside. 
sometimes from ourselves, sometimes from others. And we, and we live as someone on the outside who is very different than the person who exists on the inside. We work hard to, to sculpt our image, our outside vision, to fool ourselves and sometimes others simply into believing that what's going on on the inside is better. But no matter how much effort we put into sculpting the image of ourselves, to making ourselves look good, to cleaning ourselves up, this is one truth that we must understand we cannot hide from the gaze of God. We cannot. We cannot hide our true selves from Jesus, and neither could Nathaniel. And so I want to ask you a question. What does Jesus know about the real you? What does Jesus know about the real you? What does Jesus know that people in this room couldn't possibly ever know about you? I want you to think about that. Nathaniel experienced that Jesus had an intimate, in fact, supernatural knowledge of him. And look how Nathaniel replies. He says this. He says in verse 48, how do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Quite a quick change. Not only does Jesus know us, but he sees us. Jesus sees all that you've ever done, all that I've ever done. Jesus is a witness to every action we've ever taken. Think about that. Everything. Not only does Jesus have an intimate knowledge of our inner selves, but he's observed the outflow of who we are on the inside. He's seen every action that we take. Do you know that the actions that you take are not divorced from who you are on the inside? Do you know that, that you do things in the world because things exist inside of you? My friends, I rage because anger and wrath live in me. I lust because idolatry lives in me. I covet and I steal because dissatisfaction lives in me. I lie and I manipulate because deceit lives in me. My actions are not divorced from the inner person that I am. And Jesus tells Nathaniel that before Philip came to get you, my eyes were on you sitting beneath that fig tree. Now the text doesn't tell us what Nathaniel was doing. We have no idea what he was doing. But it's not important what Nathaniel was doing. What's important is for us to understand that Jesus saw everything that he was doing. Have you ever walked into a room on someone doing something in secret that they believe that no one would see? When I was in third grade, I had a friend, I won't name him, but I had a friend come over and stay the night. And we'd stayed up pretty late. We were playing video games and uh, after too much Mountain Dew and too much Cheetos, I had to go to the bathroom. And I walked into the bathroom, and I came back into my room, and through a slit in the door, I saw this person who I thought was my best friend rifling through my sock drawer. And he was stealing the money that, I, that he knew I had in my sock drawer. 
And over the commotion of the TV and the video games that were going on, he was so caught up in this act that he didn't notice that I was looking at him. And at that time, I didn't really have the courage to say anything to him. But the next day at school, it was very apparent that our friendship was over. And he had no real idea, idea why. I, I never really said anything about it. What he'd done, to me, created a gap between him and I. And I want to ask in this room today, what's something that you've done that you assume no one saw? What's something that you have done that you assumed no one saw? Things you may be ashamed of if these things came to light. And trust me, I'm preaching to the choir because I have many, many things I've done that I'm ashamed of. But whatever Nathaniel was doing, Jesus saw, and the fact that Jesus knew him intimately and saw his actions beneath that fig tree moved Nathaniel to believe. They moved Nathanael to believe that Jesus was not just some backwater fool from Nazareth, but he was in fact God's own son sent to earth to reign as king over Israel. It's a fantastic change. No longer was Nathanael asking, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because the only good person who have ever walked on the face of the earth was standing right before him. He knew good things could come from Nazareth. And perhaps the question that we should be asking this morning is not, can anything good come from Nazareth, but can anything good come from me? Can anything good come from me? My friends, when I look into the mirror, and you know, most people would look at my life and say, Jameson, you, you seem to have it kind of put together. Talk to Dan, he'll tell you differently. I say, you seem like you're a good person, Jameson. You seem like you love people. You seem like you care for people. You seem like you pour out yourself for people. You seem like you love to do all these things. You love your wife. You love your children. Jameson, you're a good person. I would say, no, I am not. Because I know what lives inside of me. When I discern my thoughts and my actions and my intentions, I see that I am not a good person. As a matter of fact, I fall painfully short from the title, good Psalm 53 would say this, God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We call this falling away, this corruption, we call it sin. And just like doubt, it affects every single person on the face of the earth without discrimination. Every single person. It's such a big problem that it fractures our relationship with God. And instead of living a life of blessing, we live a life under a curse. Instead of living at peace with God and peace with others and peace with ourselves... We invite God's wrath upon our lives. And the Bible tells us that because God is infinitely holy, our sin against him has an infinite penalty. That those who sin against God have an eternal destination in hell forever separated from God. Sin is a huge deal. Sin is a mass extinction event. My friends, we stand at a precipice with us on one side 
and God on the other side, and the gap between us and God is far too deep, and it's far too wide for us to ever cross on our own. It's infinite, and no matter how hard we try to clean up the outside of ourselves, because God can see inside of us, he sees that corruption, and we can never cross over to be with God on our own to fix this division between us and God that our sin has created, God requires a holy human sacrifice on our behalf. In order to forgive our sin and to bridge this gap between us and him, for an infinite sin and an infinitely large gap, we need an infinitely good sacrifice. And I know what you're looking at me, Jameson, that sounds like bad news. It is. It's bad news. It's bad news. My friends, that is why we gather today. It's why Easter Sunday is so important. Because despite the fact that our sin has separated us from God, God is not content to leave it that way. You see, God knows who you are. God sees all you've ever done. But God is committed to forgiving all of your sins. I need you to hear this this morning. He sees it all. He knows it all but he's ready to forgive all of it. And that is good news to counter the bad news. Here's some good news for you. Jesus died to forgive all of your sins. All of your sins. Read verse 50 with me. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, did you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 28 with me. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jesus is comparing himself to an Old Testament man named Jacob, whose name meant deceiver. In Genesis 28.10, we read about Jacob. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went down toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In this portion of our story, Jacob had just deceived his brother Esau, and he stole something very precious from him. And he's fleeing from the consequences of his sin. This sin had created a gap, not simply between him and God, but also between him and the other people in his life. And as Jacob's running, it becomes night and it grows dark and Jacob gets tired and he stops running long enough to rest and God comes and he meets him in a dream. And he tells Jacob that even though Jacob deserves to be forsaken, 
He deserves to be cast out. God shows him in a vision this ladder that stretches from the earth all the way up to heaven. And there's these angels that are traveling up and down on the ladder. He promises Jacob that he's going to make a way for him and God to be reunited. And some have said that in this text it's, it's a ladder. Some have said it's a staircase. Heck, it could be an elevator, an escalator. It could be a spaceship for all I care. It doesn't matter. What matters is not the orientation, but the function. This ladder bridges the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God and bridges to do two very important things. Bridges span gaps and bridges carry weight. That's what they do. I'm going to ask you a question. Has anybody been to the UP? Anybody? I know if, if you went there, you probably traveled across the Mackinac Bridge, right? Now, that, that gap between the upper and lower peninsula is only about 25,000 feet. But that bridge, that Mackinac Bridge that spans that gap, has to hold an immense amount of weight. It can hold about 38,000 tons. This bridge took an immense effort to build. It took over 3,000 people, over four years, and over $100 million to create it. And when it was created, people said it was a marvel of human innovation. They were awestruck by this. But that bridge that only spans 25,000 feet, it can only hold 38,000 tons. I want to ask the question, how much more would it cost to span the infinite gap between us and God? How much more weight would someone have to carry? And Jesus says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I am that bridge that Jacob saw. I'm the bridge between heaven and earth. I will bridge the gap. I will be the one to carry the weight. On a Friday over 2,000 years ago, Jesus would kneel in a garden and he would sweat tears of blood for what was getting ready to befall him. He would pray to his father. He would say, Father, if there's a way for you to build a different bridge, if there's a way for someone else to carry this weight, please do it. But Jesus knew that he was the only one who could bridge the gap. He was the only one who could carry the weight. So in surrender, Jesus submits to the father's will and says, not my will, but yours be done. In that garden, deserted by his friends, betrayed, Jesus was arrested. He was interrogated by Jewish and Roman officials, and not a single person, much unlike us, could find a single sin that he had committed. And though Jesus had done no wrong, he was mercilessly attacked. Jesus was flogged and whipped until the skin on his back hung like tatters in the wind. He was beaten until his face was black and blue. His beard was pulled out of his face. His kingship was mocked as they twisted together a crown of thorns and they shoved it forcefully into his head until his eyes filled with blood. They mocked him and they dressed him 
in a purple robe to ridicule his royalty. He was forced to carry a heavy crossbeam up a hill to a place called Golgotha. But on that morning, heavier than the crossbeam was the weight of sin he was carrying. Nails were driven into his hands and into his feet. He was lifted high for all to see all to mock, and as he was made a spectacle to be laughed at. And above his head read a sign, King of the Jews. And for six hours, Jesus hung on the cross, broken and bloody and dying. But Jesus would say something astonishing from that cross. Jesus would look out from that cross on that morning. He would look out on the people who did this to him and he would say, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. And before Jesus died, before he breathed his last, he said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus, a sinless man, the Son of God, was taken down from that cross and his body was as cold as the tomb they were going to put him in. He was dead. An innocent man, killed on our behalf. And for three days it seemed as if sin and death and the devil had won. Jesus' family mourned his passing. His friends grieved their loss. They cried tears over his passing. His enemies rejoiced and celebrated in their victory, and the Jewish world moved on. It seemed as though God's promise to Jacob had failed. But power over life and death belong to God alone. And failure does not exist in God's vocabulary. On Easter Sunday, Jesus' cold, dead heart began to beat. Blood began to course through his veins again. His cerebral cortex fired back up and thoughts began to flood his mind again. His lungs began to breathe air from that tomb even as light entered his eyes again and Jesus arose. He shook off his grave clothes. He folded them. He rolled the stone before the tomb away and he entered back into the land of the living. Victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell. This is why we celebrate today. This is why we rejoice. Because Jesus fulfilled what he came to do by his outstretched arms on the cross and the blood shed for us, he became the bridge he paid what we owed in our infinite debt to God. The cost was his very life. 
In his death, he atoned for our sins. In his life, he rose that he might offer us new life, not only forgiven for everything that we've done, but free from everything we've done and free from who we've been. He calls us into new life. In his death, he proved that he was human. In his resurrection, he proved that he was God. He is the son of man, as the text says. He is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. There is no one like Jesus. There is only one bridge. Jesus is the bridge between heaven and earth. We started this morning with a question. How well does Jesus know me? My friends, Jesus knows all you are. He sees everything you've done, yet he loved you enough to die so your sins and my sins could be forgiven. How amazing is that? But not only forgiveness, but new life, and he gives it to us as a free gift. I want you to think about that. A free gift. All that he asks is that we believe. All he asks that we believe, and by his grace, this, this love and this favor that we don't deserve, that's what grace is. He says, I'll wipe away your debt. He saves us by grace, through faith in him. He doesn't ask that we come and clean ourselves up. He doesn't ask that we seem perfect. All that he asks is we say, Jesus, you've seen all I am and all I've done, and I see that I'm not good. But Jesus, I see that you're good, and I see that I need you. That's what he asked, that we come to him trusting that his death on our behalf is what we need to be reunited with God. And my friends, if you haven't walked across that bridge yet, that is, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he wants you to believe. He wants you to get on the bridge. The Bible says that all we have to do is believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we will be saved. Jesus doesn't ask for works. He asks for faith. He asks that we would believe that Jesus is the bridge. This morning, we're going to be baptizing. We have water right here. And the Bible says that our first step on the bridge with Jesus is baptism. That we can announce to the world, I'm walking with Jesus now. I'm walking with the word. And my friends, if you're, if you're on the bridge, that is, you've already trusted with Jesus, you, you've, you've placed your faith in him, you see him as the Messiah and as your savior, but maybe you've come here this morning and you're like, this is just another day. Maybe your faith is waning. Maybe your zeal for your relationship with Jesus is fading. Maybe life feels Heavy, maybe like me, you're you're doubting the future. My friends, God wants to fortify your faith and help you understand that the bridge will hold. The bridge will hold. You see, Jesus isn't like that sketchy bridge I talked about at the beginning of my sermon. He's not like that at all. There are no holes in the support that he gives us. He's strong. He's not going to blow apart under the winds of life. He is ancient, but he hasn't failed yet. 
He's not gonna buckle under the weight of your sin. He carried that to the cross already. He's not going to fall apart as you're battered by the trials and tribulations and suffering and hurts of life. My friends, Jesus knows what you're facing and he's supporting you through it. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Jesus knows what you're facing and he's supporting you through it. Because here's the good news. He knows us, he sees us. And not only does he see everything that we've done and everything we are, he sees everything we're going through and he's right there beside us. My friends, he has the power to save you. Whether you're on the bridge or off the bridge, his power is infinite. His power to take you all the way to glory is infinite. And so I ask you this, if you do not trust in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Believe. If you do trust in Jesus, I ask you to believe anew. Trust again in the risen Christ. Trust in the bridge between heaven and earth. And no matter what you do, trust that the bridge will hold. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for you. Where would we be without you, Jesus? Where would we be? Lord, we would be dead in our sins, but because of your sacrifice on our behalf, many of us in this room walk in new life. No longer weighed down by the shackles of sin, but instead free to look up at a Savior who has overcome for us. And so, Lord, this morning, we want to give you all the praise and all the glory and all the adoration that you deserve. Jesus, there's breath in our lungs because of you, and we have new life because of you. And so this morning, I pray that in all the hearts of your children, you would be magnified you would be glorified, that we would adore you for doing that which we could not. And Lord, that we would trust you, that you will take us to the very end, that we will cross that bridge that is you, and one day we will enter into eternal life because of your life, your death, and your resurrection. Lord, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.